Hello and welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Today in our podcast, we hear the Sermon from the Weekend, where we celebrated All Saints Sunday, and Pastor Ben continued our sermon series, Transformed Lives, exploring the ways that Jesus transformed the lives of those around him. Our scripture today is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and verses 35 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he had strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, I bet you, in your life, somewhere along the way, maybe this week, you've run into somebody who doesn't do really well with social cues, or maybe they don't really understand social norms that well. Maybe this has happened to you. You're, you're in a movie theater, and you sit down, you're on a date, so with your, you're with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you're really excited about the movie. You've been planning this for a long time. So you pick out your premiere seat, you have your popcorn, you have your soda, and you're sitting there. And what's really nice is there's no one else in the theater. It's just you. So there's going to be no noise and and no bother, and you're just really excited for this movie. Well, as the movie pops up on the screen, you hear some rustling, and some people come in, and one person comes and sits right next to you. And I mean, not in the same row, I mean right next to you, and you don't know who they are. And of course, you would think, this is really weird, right? Because all of us know the social norm that we do not violate is when a theater is empty, we do not sit by someone we don't know, do we, right? We give them their space. We all know that, or at least now you know that now, right? So maybe you're the violator in that scenario. But we all have these social norms, things that when they're broken, we think this person, something's not quite right with them, or they need to be told that they shouldn't behave this way. Another type of person that breaks a social norm is what I call the close talker, right? This is the person who when you engage them in conversation or they come and talk to you, they, they talk to you like three inches from, from your face, right? You can taste what they had for breakfast just through the conversation. 
you know, that's, that's uncomfortable and, and awkward. And so what we naturally do in that situation is we take a step back, don't we? But here's the problem. A close talker doesn't understand that body language. And what do they do? They take a step forward, right? There's no escaping the close talker. But as equally as, as awkward is another thing that happens is to, some people will talk to you too far away, right? So there's a happy medium, right? You don't want to be too close, but you don't want to be like five feet away from someone engaging them in conversation. How about these? I'm sure you've never experienced these because these are so obvious that no one would ever break these social norms. Imagine that you have someone coming over to your house. Now, it's the first time they've come over. You're not really close friends. You're more acquaintances, and you're definitely not family. Imagine them coming into your house. You open up the door. They walk right to your kitchen, open up the fridge, pull out a drink. They go and they open up a, cab- a cabinet, they pull out a glass, they pour the drink in, they're drinking it, and they just walk around your house and they open up your drawers and just kind of see what, like, what kind of clothes you have. They open up your closets. They give themselves a self-guided tour. Of course, no one would do that, right? Because we all know when we go to someone's house, we're supposed to ask permission for everything, especially the first few times, right? We walk in and we say, may I use your bathroom? May I have a drink? will you give me a tour of your house, right? We don't just do these things automatically because that's against our social cues, right? That's against our social norms. How about this one? You all know this one. When you get in an elevator, which direction do you face? Right? You face the the door, right? You all know this. If you got in an elevator and someone faced you or the wall, that would be very weird, right? So you get in there, everyone's facing the door. I don't know why, but that's what we do. That's what we know we're supposed to do. We all face the same direction. We don't make eye contact. We just wait until that little metal box gets to the door, and then we get out, right? That's what we do. You see, if an adult breaks a social cue, we think, this is very weird. This is very uncomfortable, or something's probably wrong with this person, right? But if a child breaks a social cue, we don't think anything of it. Right? We just assume that no one has ever told them, right? They just don't know better. And I think sometimes when it comes to life, as Christians, we, we've internalized God's truth and we've read his word and, and we kind of know how to navigate life. We've learned his truth. We've put it into practice. I think sometimes what happens is we look at others who don't know that truth yet and we think, what's wrong with these people? Why are they caught up in this addiction? Why are they trying to find transformation in their life in, in all the wrong places? But the truth is, we should look at them like little children. Because the truth is, everyone wants transformation. But the other truth is, not many know how to find it. And this was true today, as it was true in Christ's day. And so when Christ walked around the earth, and he navigated life, and he talked to people, he understood that they did not know the truth. They didn't really know how to experience real transformation. And they were doing things that were weird and strange. Because without the truth, that's what we do. We do things that are weird and strange. But when he ran into those people, he cared for them and he loved them. He had empathy on them and he engaged them in conversation because he wanted to bring the truth into their life to replace those lies. Well, over the next few weeks, we're embarking on a conversation, a sermon series called Transformed Lives. And in it, we're looking at at five specific conversations where Jesus, in real history, went up to somebody, 
had a real conversation, had compassion on them, and reoriented their life so they could experience real transformation. And if you missed out last week, you can go to our website and, and catch up on part one, or you can subscribe to our podcast and it'll automatically download to your phone or computer because I don't want you to miss any of these conversations. But today we're going to continue that and look in the book of Mark, and this is what it says. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. You see, very often, Jesus would would navigate areas around the Sea of Galilee. And to get there in a shorter period of time, he would get on his boat and make a straight line, right? The boat was faster than walking, and it allowed him the ability to navigate almost from point A to point B in a perfectly straight line. But the problem was this people started recognizing his boat, and he was incredibly popular, especially as the miracles and the conversations, people were just flocking to Christ. And so when they'd see the boat coming, when he would arrive, there was already a crowd there. And the beauty of the crowd is it really allowed a space for anyone and everyone to hear of Christ's truth. You see, there were rich, there were poor, there were young, there were old, there was male, there was female, there was people who believed in Jesus, people who didn't believe in Jesus, people who were figuring it out in the middle. They were trying to understand if this guy was really the Messiah or who he really was. And there was even people who were against Christ. And everyone was welcome to join in the conversation. And in the midst of this moment, this is what happens. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came. And when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly. So we run into this guy who fights his way through the crowds. His name is Jairus, right? He fights through the crowds, fights through the crowds. This has probably taken a long time for him to finally get to Christ. And when he gets to Christ, he falls down flat on his face and he starts begging him for something. But before we get to what he's asking for, we need to understand who this guy is. It says in Scripture that he's the ruler of the synagogue. Now, you're probably not hyper-familiar with what a synagogue is, But in our modern-day context, we actually have something very similar. If you've ever been to a huge megachurch, you know that a lot of really large churches, they have what they call satellite campuses. These are small hubs and churches all around the city or the state. And it's just a smaller setting where the people can connect with God closer to where they live. And so big churches have little hubs that they go out there. And many times, the pastor will get projected on a screen So the sermon will be from the same pastor, but all different places all around the city. And the synagogues were very similar. In the Jewish faith, they had the temple that was in Jerusalem, but then the synagogues started popping up so people could pray and worship and hear God's word right where they were. And each synagogue had a ruler, and this was this guy. And his job was to orchestrate and organize those services. And part of his job was to bring in teachers to come teach the word. But here's the problem. In that day, just like today, as people try to understand an infinite God with finite minds, sometimes we divide on what Scripture says and how we understand it. And in that day, there was two groups of people that were the primary teachers, and their names were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they didn't always get along because they had some differing views on a couple things in Scripture. And one of those things that they differed on was what happens after death. You see, the Pharisees believed that there was life after death, but the Sadducees believed that at the end of this life, the story was just done. 
There was no more story. There was no more eternal life. It was just done. You get this life, and that's what it is. And so that was their division. But these two groups would teach at synagogues. And so you can see where it could become kind of a political atmosphere where a ruler of synagogue had to navigate these two groups. How many Pharisees do I bring in to teach? How many Sadducees do I, I bring in to teach? And it could create kind of some political tension for these rulers as they navigated those, those waters. But despite their differences against each other, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they did agree on one very specific thing. Though they divided over these things, they agreed that they didn't like Jesus that much. Which means the ruler of the synagogue could navigate the political waters okay with these two groups, but if he ever brought Jesus in to teach, it might create a lot of turmoil and strife. And some rulers did. So when this guy goes to Christ, he's committing political suicide. He's going to have everyone against him. But he's so, so desperate, he doesn't care. And this is why. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You see, he doesn't care about what people think about him because his daughter's life is on the line. And if your daughter's life is on the line, you will do anything it takes to find a solution. And so he fights through the crowd. He goes to Jesus, the political enemy, the religious enemy of many of his peers. And he falls on his face and asks for healing. He wants something positive to happen for his daughter. So this is Jesus' response. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. So Christ says, yes, I will come and heal your daughter. But the problem is they're still in the middle of this massive crowd. And you know people. We want what we want when we want it. And this is what the crowd wants. They want their miracles. They want to hear from Christ. And so they're, they're pressing in on Jesus. And ultimately they're pressing in on Jairus as they're trying to make their way to the daughter. Well, this slows them down. And in the meantime, this is what happens. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So they find the ruler of the synagogue. They fight through the crowd and they tell him this, this horrible news. Your daughter is dead. Let's go. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, the way they say it is so harsh, right? We would never deliver the news this way. We'd probably say, I'm so, so sorry your daughter has passed. Or we'd reach in and give them a hug and just say, I'm sorry, and they would know what we're talking about. We would never be so bold to just simply say, your daughter is dead. Quit bothering the teacher. Let's go. So what's going on here? Now, I don't know for sure, but in this political climate, I have a guess, a strong hunch that the reason they're talking so harshly to Christ is because they do have an awareness that the daughter is dead. But they also don't want this guy to jeopardize his future in the meantime. Because being with Christ and being associated with Christ would be political suicide. And they didn't want him to lose his daughter and lose his role in the same day. But this is what happens. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. 
Do not fear the Pharisees. Do not fear the crowd. Do not fear the Sadducees. Don't worry about your peers. Believe in me. I want to give you transformation. And the only way you can do it is if you trust me. If you have faith in me, if you believe in me, if you have a real relationship with me, I'm going to produce the transformation that you're looking for. So Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So he goes, and he takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. This was the inner circle of Christ. These were his closest friends. These guys were in him at the most significant points in his ministry. They were with him in the garden. They were with him during the transfiguration. And they were about to be with him during one of his most significant miracles. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. You see, when he arrived, he experienced in that culture what would be a social norm. This behavior was expected. And the reason it was expected is because when people died in that culture, you were expected to be loud. You're expected to cry loud and make loud noises. That was what was expected. That was the norm in that culture. In fact, if you were really rich, you would even hire people to come in and scream and carry on because that was what you were supposed to do. In fact, if you didn't do that, that would be weird and abnormal and people would think something is wrong with you. So as Jesus approaches, he sees this scene and this is how he responds. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. So he asked him this question. Why do you carry on and why do you weep, right? Why are you acting like this? Which, of course, they'd be thinking, because this is what we're supposed to do. Everyone knows this. We don't even know why, but we know this is what we're supposed to do. This is the social norm, and if you don't do this, it's weird and it's offensive, right? This is what we do. And then he makes a secondary statement. The child is not dead, but sleeping, and this is how they respond, And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. You see, they laughed at him because they thought he was crazy. He said the child was just sleeping. She obviously was dead. Everyone knew that. That wasn't in question. And he was violating their social norms. So he was looking very strange. You see, they had bought into a lie. They believed that he didn't know what he was talking about, and they believed that he couldn't do anything. And I think, unfortunately, in our world, this is the lie that many of us buy into, right? When we look at Christ, we assumed his words don't don't matter, right? He doesn't know what he's talking about, and he can't possibly produce anything positive in my life, and so we go on our way, and we don't internalize God's truth. And ultimately, we never experience the full transformation that we are meant to have in this life and the life eternal. But for those who wanted it, he brings his disciples, he brings the mothers, and those who believe in to experience something unbelievable. And this is what happens. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. 
Now, I don't know a better word for this situation, but it seems like amazement does not cut it. If your 12-year-old daughter had died in front of you, and Jesus walks in, grabs her by the hand, and she just pops right up like she was asleep, and she was wide awake all of a sudden. I don't think we have a word in the, in the human language, any language, that really describes what that feels like or what that be, would be like, right? You would just be stunned. You would just be shocked. You would just be staring, and you wouldn't have the words. You wouldn't know how to respond in this moment as this amazing thing happens. And in their shock and in their awe, this is what Christ says. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So he gives them a command, and then he says, go feed her. Because I think they were just like frozen, right? So he just gives them something to do, right? Just start moving. Give your daughter something to eat, right? Go into the kitchen, move about, and we'll just kind of get over this amazing, amazing moment so you can actually function as humans. But he makes them this command. He says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Now, let's be honest. If your daughter who was dead and everyone knew she was dead, if she comes back to life, you're going to tell everyone, right? You're going to tell everyone. If you experience that type of transformation in your life, you're just naturally going to tell people. That's the way life is. When we experience Christ's transformation, that's what's expected. In fact, that's what's normal, is that we should tell people about that. But here's the secondary truth. When something like this, something so amazing, something so unbelievable happens, there's really only the closest to us that are going to believe that story. Right? Those who were there and saw her dead and were outside wailing, when they heard the story, of course, they would believe because they experienced it as well. And so when the story got to them, they had this availability and openness to the story. But the other people who would believe this couple when they told them this amazing story of their daughter was going to be those who trusted them already. Their friends and their family and their closest friends. As the story went on, there was people who would doubt. Right? If you heard it on the street, you would just say, no, that didn't happen. And there's people in that day who did that. But those who were most impacted, those who were most transformed, beyond the people who experienced it, were those the closest to the people who experienced it. And in that, there's a powerful truth. You see, when we experience Christ's transformation in our life, those who are going to be most receptive to our story, our story of transformation, are going to be our sons, our daughters, our grandkids, our closest friends, those who already trust us. And when they trust us, we tell them this truth so they can experience true transformation. But here's the central truth we see through this story. It's this, that Christ uses death as a tool for transformation. You see, in the garden, Satan got Adam and Eve to fall, make a stake, bring sin into the world. And in that, it brought death. And he thought he had brought a great tool for destruction. And in some ways, he did. But when Christ showed up, he took that tool for destruction and turned it into a tool for transformation. Because no matter how young or how old, when we die, how tragic or how expected, in that moment, Christ transforms us. See, when I was 13, I experienced what I remember as my first funeral. I'd maybe been to someone in the past, but I, I remember this one very vividly. And the reason is, the lady who had died, I was, I was very close to. 
She taught in our church, fourth and fifth and sixth grade. She taught our Sunday school classes, and, and she had really kind of grown close to me, specifically and three of my friends. And so she would invite us four over for dinner, and, and her husband would treat us and take us out for ice cream and things like that. And she just really cared for us and really wanted to influence us well. They even took us on vacation one time, which was really, really fun until we broke their four-wheeler, and then they didn't think that was as fun anymore. But we were really close to them. And so when she passed away unexpectedly, she asked that us four boys would be the pallbearers. And we attended, for us, probably one of our first funerals. And if you've been to a funeral before, you know there's all sorts of emotions swirling about. And you don't really know how to navigate it. You don't know what to feel. You don't know how to act. And for a 13-year-old boy, we really didn't know how to act and behave. And I remember sitting outside the sanctuary just before our time to serve and, and carry her up front and ultimately carry her to her final resting place was, was about to transpire. We were sitting there and we were so caught up in emotion, we didn't know how to act. And so we just started goofing around because we thought if we could just bring some joy into this moment, maybe we'd feel a little bit better. And so we were goofing around and this lady came up to us and she was probably like 40, but I remember her being like 120, right? <laughs> she walks up and she puts her hand on her shoulder and she says, boys, we do not laugh at funerals. You see, we were violating, in her mind, a social norm, right? You don't laugh at funerals. But here's the beauty of what Christ did. When Christ came, he took death and he flipped it on its head. He took what was supposed to be meant for destruction and he made it a tool for transformation. You see, what we knew and what she had taught us all throughout her life is that death is just the beginning. And when she died, we knew the first face that she saw was Christ. The first hand that she held was Christ. And she walked into a new and perfect body, a place of perfection that the Bible tells us there's no pain and no sorrow. And when you believe that, and when you know that, even at a funeral, there's space for joy. And there's even space for laughter. Mm-hmm.